I, uh, I want to return to our What a Character series. And I've been preaching this since late last year, or probably not even that late, but it just goes on and on. And, uh, and what I've been wanting to do is actually just do a character profile of, of different people in Scripture that uh, the Bible says people are there for our example. And even the stories, the things, even some of the confusing and crazy stories, they're there for, for our understanding, our learning. You do realise that uh, just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean God wanted it. We often just look at the Bible and go, well, if it's in the Bible, that's what's God's will. Well, actually, no. You know, it wasn't God's will for David to fall with Bathsheba in a, into adultery and then murder a husband. That, that wasn't his will, but it's in the Bible. Some things are there for us to avoid, if you know what I mean. Uh, but the What a Character series, we've been learning and I've been trying to just look at a whole life. And of course, the whole thought is this. We've got this saying in our society, what a character. You know, and it, it's generally when someone stands out for some crazy reason. But, but the, the fact is, when we say, well, he's such a character, or what a character, or she's such a character, it's always said in a positive light. Even, you know, if they're a bit extreme, they're a bit crazy or whatever, it's always said in a positive light. So I've been looking at Bible characters with this whole thought of, uh, you know, someone that, that you go, wow, you've just got to take your hat off. Yeah. To that person, and obviously there's lessons in it for us. Yeah, you know, when, when I first met Jesus, which now, uh, just talking to Mike Reynolds, who, do you remember us? You wouldn't come to youth group when your parents were first in this church, and we abducted you from your bedroom. We took our youth group of like 20 kids, and we broke into Mike's room, and literally, I think we, I don't know whether we tied you up, but we held you, yeah, we did. We tied him up, and you couldn't do this legally nowadays. This is back when youth group was like lots of fun. No, no, it's all, it's fun now. <laughs> We, we are just fun within workplace health and safety guidelines, okay? But, but we took Mike and we tied him up and we dragged him all over the place for the whole night and made him part of our youth group, whether he wanted to be or not. And I don't know whether you even missed a night after that. He was in. And it's great to have you back, mate. It's just wonderful to see you. Uh, and uh, where was I? When I met Jesus, it just changed my perspective on everything. You know, it, it shook up my value system. It changed my behaviour. It, it changed the way I looked at people. It changed the way I looked at money. It changed the way that I looked at myself, at self-image and, and my own security as a person. And it should. You know, when, when you come to Jesus, you know, maybe you're just on a journey at the moment. And that's not in your plans, and that's okay. You're very welcome to be with us tonight, whether that's online or right here in the building. Uh, maybe you've already had that encounter. Maybe, maybe tonight is your night for that encounter. But one thing, meeting Jesus has got to change you. It's going to change you. It's, it's, it's got to. And, and I always think of it this way. It, when you meet Jesus, it should hit your face. Come on. It should hit your face. And uh, because even if your circumstances don't change, I tell you what, hope begins to well up in your heart. Everything begins to change. I do not understand Christians who walk around looking like they've been baptised in lemon juice. I mean, we can always have a bad day, but when people determine to live a bad life, I don't understand that if you say that you know Jesus. And the other thing that it should change, it should change your hands. 
It should hit your face and then it should hit your hands. In other words, the way that you act and what you do with your life, it should actually change that. And turn it upside down. And I want to look at a character tonight that, uh, whose life was you know, radically changed by Jesus. And he's someone who's very, very prominent. What a character, John. The Apostle John. He's got a number of terms through church tradition. John the Elder, John the Evangelist. John, the, And of course, Bible scholars argue about whether this one was that one or whatever. There's a lot of books of the Bible attributed to him traditionally. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote three pastoral letters to the churches. And he also wrote the book of Revelation. And that's traditionally, but modern scholars dispute some of that because that's what modern scholars are paid to do. You don't sell books unless you've got controversy. It's like the news. If you know, if the six o'clock news every night said, hey, all's well with the world, would you watch it? Night after night, all's well with the world. You can all go home now. It'd be like, well, there, there wouldn't be any appeal in that. And... Uh, and, and, and we've got John, and John's got some really interesting things in his life and, and who he is as a character. The Bible calls him John the Beloved, or the one that Jesus loved. The funny thing is, is he's the one who calls himself that. <laughs> the disciple who Jesus loved. And it's John. It just happens to be him writing it. No less than six times in his gospel, John refers to himself as the one Jesus loved. So you could draw from that that he had a really good self-esteem. <laughs> or probably what's most likely is that it's actually humility. That John was actually not putting his name, inserting his name in the story for a reason. Because he actually wants you to take your place instead in the verse and if you read the gospel that way you see that you are the one you are the disciple whom Jesus loved so hey I, I like John already I like John already you know he's secure and he brings you into the story and I want to look at a little bit from him and I want to actually take because he's written so much I want to actually take a point from every every uh, genre of scripture that he's written into. So the, the, the gospels could be called like historical. The, the letters are pastoral epistles. So they're, they're that kind of writing. And then the book of Revelation is its own whole animal of apocalyptic literature is literally what it's called. And so uh, we're going to look at one thought from each of these. You ready? You ready to dive in? To John, okay. Uh, here's some things I noticed about his life and a passage of scripture which informs me that it was so. First one is intimacy with Jesus. And I want to take this story from his gospel account, from his historical sort of record of his perception of Jesus' life and ministry. John chapter 13, verse 23 to 25. And this is where Jesus has let them know someone will betray him. It's at the Last Supper. But you see a little window into John's soul right here. And it says, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him, next to Jesus. And Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, 
He asks him, Lord, who is it? And there's, there's such a, a picture here. Other translations, older translations like the King James, they say he leaned on Jesus' breast. But just studying through the Greek this afternoon afresh, and it was like it actually to lean on is the correct terminology. He just simply leant on Jesus. He's reclining next to him at the table. They would have been seated on the floor in sort of Middle Eastern tradition in that sense with a little low table. And John's reclining back. Peter leans over and, and probably whispers, ask him who it is. Which is interesting in itself and another point I don't want to make, but you know, Peter had the thought that if Jesus is going to tell anyone, <laughs> he's going to tell John. And then John leans back into Jesus. Now, this, this is really cultural. Um, so, so, so for us, you know, Aussie males in the building tonight, that might seem a bit creepy. Not in its cultural context, but even in its cultural context, it's still an absolute picture of intimacy. As John leans back into Jesus and asks him this significant question. We're not going to go with the rest of the passage because I just want us to take that snapshot. It's an indicator of the level of intimacy that John had with Jesus. Another great intimacy is at the foot of the cross as Jesus is crucified and there's only a couple of the women and John ends up at the foot of the cross. And Jesus says to his mother Mary as he's dying, you know, where is your son? He poses this question and then he says to John, John, behold your mother. In other words, he was saying, of everyone I know, John, you're the one that I trust with mum. And by this, most scholars believe that, that Joseph was probably already dead by this point. And you know, Jesus was 33, uh, even if Joseph had him at, at, at 20, 53 was a ripe old age in these times. Yeah. And so most likely Joseph's not on the scene, he's not mentioned in the Gospels after the, the birth story. So most likely Joseph is gone and Jesus realises with no social security, with no sort of safety net under this whole thing, his mother needs some sense of security and he commits her to John. John had intimacy with Jesus. And it's, this is the interesting thing. I heard it said long ago, and I think it's such a faithful saying. It's not Bible, it's a faithful saying. God does not have favourites, but he does have intimates. He doesn't have favourites. He's not a respecter of persons as such. He doesn't like one person more than the other. But he does have intimates. He does have people that are willing to push into him and to know him. And I believe with all my heart, absolutely everyone in that room was invited into that space. But it's interesting that John seems to be the only one that took him up on it. Man, what a character. What a character. Second thought, the second thing I see about John is his love for people. And this is out of one of his letters. It's a reflection out of one of his letters. It's a beautiful passage. It's a little bit long, but I want to read it to you. And he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. You know, in in John's mind, it's just you just got to get this right. God is love, and if you say you know him, 
then you would have to love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And it's just this beautiful passage of scripture. I tell you what, it sorts out religion from relationship. <laughs> if you know God and God is love, then it will flow out into your relationships with other people. It will be undeniable. And John, obviously, he knew this teaching from Jesus. Jesus said, this is how men will know that you are my disciples because you have love for one another. And, and John is just mirroring his master. That his love for God could be measured by his love for his fellow man. John's that strong. He actually says, you can't love God without loving people. You can't do it. You can't be someone who goes, well, I really, really love God, but I just don't get along with all those creepy people. That just doesn't make sense. And this is John. I think it's something that he discovered as he loved God incarnate. Jesus came as God, or as man, sorry, to reveal God to us. You won't get a clearer picture of God than you will get in the face of Jesus Christ. It precedes every previous image that is a fragment. It's a little piece. People got pieces all through Scripture, all through the Ark of Scripture. People got little bits, little gems, little things. God's like this. God's like that. God, but none of it was complete. All of it was unclear until Jesus came. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And John had gotten a hold of this. Loving Jesus, loving God in flesh, John realised you cannot separate God from his creation. It doesn't mean creation is God, but you cannot separate God from a creation whom he dwells within. As the scripture says, everything is held together by the word of his power. Everything is held together by the grace and mercy of God. And in this, John practised what he preached. He loved God and he loved people. What a character. What a character to emulate. What a character to learn from. What a character to be convicted by. And the last thought comes from his last written work, the book of Revelation, which is maybe the most misunderstood. And I'm going to totally explain the book of Revelation to you tonight in the next three minutes. <laughs> but I will explain how to read it so that you don't get it as wrong as maybe what some people tend to do. The, the last thing that I see in John is he had the big picture thinking. He saw the big picture. He literally saw the big picture. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. 
But just before we get there, before you get to this moment where John, who leant on Jesus' breast or leant back against Jesus, developed intimacy with Jesus, lived a pastoral ministry of encouraging you know, the church to love each other, to love people the way that they love God, before John got to write this book, by tradition, something happened to him. And even if tradition is, is, is just tradition and not fact... There are some factors that happen to John. The first one is this. Tradition says that because of his, his vibrancy in preaching the gospel and sharing Jesus everywhere he went, because one of his titles was John the Evangelist by the early church. So it was understood that he proclaimed the gospel wherever he went. He fell foul of the Roman establishment at that time, which was very, very anti-Christian and actively persecuting it and was therefore dipped in boiling oil to execute him. But he survived. And so they could not literally, by their legal system, kill him twice. Sort of a double jeopardy thing. So he was banished, and this we do know is fact. He was banished to the Isle of Patmos, which is in the Aegean Sea and is a totally barren island. And there were salt mines there and Rome, Rome used to banish its political prisoners there to work in the salt mines. It's a thing. It's a real thing to work in a salt mine. And it's a terrible thing in those days, obviously. And that's where John was banished to. And we know that that is a fact. And that's where he got a revelation of the big picture. Don't you love it? You know, a man that's been through so much, been so faithful, so loving goes through a terrible experience, however level, whatever level of truth is in both of those stories, and then comes up with the biggest picture for the history of man that's ever been recorded in the Bible. While there, he had a vision, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, and I'm just going to introduce it. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom, and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, I was only here because I was talking about Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches of Asia, and that, that, that passage closes out naming those churches. And basically, John goes on to have this amazing vision of, quote-unquote, the apocalypse. Kingdoms and creatures, political and spiritual upheaval. And it's a ghastly thing, if you've ever read it, the bowls of the wrath of God poured out upon the earth. All kinds of things, just the stuff that you want to read your kids before you put them to bed. <laughs> And John has this vision of things to come. And, and the problem is our modern imagination, just really quickly as an aside, our modern imagination has an interpretation of apocalypse to mean like a great big battle, that's the end of the world. And the Greek term doesn't mean that. Apocalypto simply means to reveal. That's why the book's called Revelation. <laughs> 
It's just a reveal of what is unseen. And Paul, uh, John is seeing into the spirit realm things to come and, and great spiritual powers fighting darkness and light and all these things. Kingdoms rising and falling, political things, most of which have already been fulfilled at least once in the first century. And John sees all this stuff. And one of the other reasons, one of the main things we get wrong with this, have you ever heard someone call it the book Revelations? I was reading Revelations the other day. I cringe every time. It's not what the book's called. It's called The Revelation. See, if you call, even getting the name wrong can throw you down the wrong path. If you call it Revelations, then you look at it as a scattering of scary stories and all these things that might come to pass. And I hope that I'm not around for the great tribulation. When you read it the way it was written, the full title of the book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's a revelation of Jesus as the Lord over all history. Kingdoms rising and withstanding God and people and evil men rising up and destroying people. And yet somehow God has the last say. John gets the big picture and he gets it right. And he encourages the church with no matter what is going on, no matter what wheels seem to be falling off, Jesus will have his way. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And you look at John after being through so much, He's still praying. <laughs> He's still seeking. He still has an intimacy with Jesus that brings a vision like no man had ever seen before. Potentially only Daniel saw anything like that into world events. And here's John at the end of his life, literally, still faithful to Jesus. And I think, what a character. What a character. Here's a couple of questions for us tonight. They come off the back of looking at John's life. One, God doesn't have favourites, but all are invited to intimacy. What are you doing with the invitation? What are you doing with the invitation? You know, as a believer, you know, it's there for you. Maybe tonight you're on a journey and you wouldn't say, look, I'm not a, a big believer in God. I, I don't even believe in Jesus Christ. And all I can say tonight, friend, is there is an invitation. God doesn't have favourites. He doesn't look at church people and people who you know, don't have faith in God or don't go to church or whatever. He doesn't look at them as any less or any different. He just sees people that need to reconnect with their creator. That's what he sees. And, and that invitation is there. It, it, it's the only question is what are you going to do with that invitation do you see the way you treat people as a clear expression of what you truly believe about God you know, particularly tonight if you're a believer you know, do, do you see the way that you treat people as a true indicator of the depth of your commitment, your love for God, because God sees it that way. He sees 
our love for him reflected in the way that we treat people. And lastly, has your relationship with God deepened and broadened your approach to life? Do you see things from a higher perspective, from a bigger perspective? I mean, John gives us the ultimate example in Revelation and and, and a spirit given. But I tell you, when you meet Jesus, it should shift your perception anyway. You don't need to be a prophet for that. God wants to shift the way that you see people, the way that you value people, what you literally value in life, what you ascribe value to, what you sow time into your effort into, what you give your talent towards. When you meet Jesus, it can change that perspective radically and radically refocus us on God's agenda for our lives, which ultimately will always be what brings our greatest fulfilment, is to be who He knows we were created to be.